When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of The Group Chat. I am news correspondent here at Virgin Media News, Richard Chambers. I'm joined by my fellow news correspondent, Zara King. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, I'm good actually. I'm Gavin Ryan. I think so. I mean, I think we're rearing to go here now. We're in a good, I feel like I'm getting some summer vibes. Are you getting summer vibes? It is, yeah. 20 degrees this, win- this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite nice. It's been quite nice. I, I feel like I've we're getting I've broken open my emergency antihistamines, so it's definitely summer vibes. And I've got an extra highlights put in, so summer started for me. There you for go. Sure. Never a truer sign of summer than the highlights and the antihistamines. Clear sure. in the there Monster Hurling final, and we've got our hair dyeing antihistamines. Who wants not listen. to love? That is, that is, yeah, we're, we're heading forwards. Another, another long, hot summer if Claire are doing well in the Monster Championship. But, um, How's Waterford doing, by the way, or dare I ask? Done. Oh, oh man. Okay. Oh, another day's story. All right. Okay. Oh dear. Anyway, <laughs> peak of the news headlines again is what we were talking about last week, which is uh, the government's increasingly fractured attempt at securing accommodation for international protection applicants, as well as the number of protests and blockades that we've now seen and the emergence of national awareness really around the far right and their activities in this country, as well as other hardline anti-immigration activists. So now, um, as of yesterday, Roderick O'Gorman was telling the all there's about 199, I think it is, people who are without accommodation who are international protection applicants. The government's aim is to get that below 100 mm. by the June bank holiday. But as we have seen repeatedly, Zara, getting people into accommodation as they acquire new accommodation is not so straightforward a thing. Yeah, and the whole aspect of integration seems to be lacking from those transitions into accommodation because it seems that most people in these local communities where uh, asylum seekers are being moved are actually not being told that this is happening and the whole aspect of actually integrating people into society uh, seems to be lacking and we've seen that unfold again uh, over the last couple of days. Richard, you were reporting of the night on one particular incident um, which became quite heated. Yes, I think this is going to be something as well. I think we have heard from people including the Justice Minister Simon Harris and now he's somewhat backtracked on this or has said, well, obviously you are able to question the Guardi in the grandest sense of things, but he says mm-hmm. that it's not for any of us. Anybody who's sitting behind a desk, as he said multiple times, or sitting in the doll or behind a microphone to question the operational decisions of a guard on the beat. But there have been questions about how Guardi have policed anti-migrant protests, whether it be an inch with the blockade, whether it be Sandwich Street or Santry, which mm-hmm. has been going on for three weeks without actually much notoriety until the arrival of the National Party at last weekend. Um, but this is something which is probably likely to continue to happen because we now have a number of other blockades which are being mm. um, prepared, mm. whether or not there actually is any but, migrant accommodation but going in there. There is a sense that some of those other blockades are now occurring because of the Guardi's somewhat understated policing response to what we saw in Inch. So, for example, the guards were saying that in Inch, what the, the proposal or the um, the tack they were taking was very non-confrontational. They were trying to do everything they possibly could so as not to escalate the situation. And it might have been broadly successful in that instance, but it has, whether deliberately or not, almost provided this template where because others who might be minded to do similarly, no, the guards are never going to move in and, and pull down a blockade that it effectively gives others a charter 
that they know what they can do without the guards getting in the way. Yeah, but there does have to be questions asked about how it's being handled and sort of what are the parameters for which, you know, Angarda Shiokwana can intervene or like, I mean, even when it comes down to sort of the, the narrative, say, for example, from the Taoiseach this week, where he'll say, look, you know, we respect people's right to protest. But at the end of the day, like people don't have a say or a call on who moves into their community. Mm. All of that is... Um, you know, it, it's fine commentary, but like, what does it actually mean in the grand scheme of things in terms of action on the ground, in terms of the demonstrations, in terms of how those demonstrations are policed, in terms of how the community are communicated with? It goes back to that conversation around integration. You know, a lot of it is rhetoric, but what does it actually mean when you're you're on the ground? There's a couple of different points on it. If you take the policing point of it, the idea and the criticism pointed at the Gardaí is that by doing nothing or taking the hands-off approach or the softly, mm. softly approach, as I put it towards Drew Harris and he denied that was such a thing, um, is that you'll encourage more and more people to do this because they can see, they've seen that it can be successful and they can get plenty of notoriety for these protests, get mm. plenty of media attention, uh, even websites on the right around the world have picked up on things like Inch and Sandwich Street mm. as being a sign of Ireland pushing back against asylum seekers and refugees, which reputationally for the country in a political sense is probably not something which the government wants to see happen. But in terms of the overall communication aspect, this is something the government says, I mean, there's a couple of things to look at there on this. If people have actual genuine concerns about services and whatnot, I mean, Roger O'Gorman and the Taoiseach said, particularly around Inch, said, yeah, well, we didn't get the communication aspect about that right. We probably could have given a couple more days of notice around that. Mm. But it does need to be said that some of the people who are involved in some of the blockades, whether it be in Santry or in Inch, communicated openly mm. their feeling that it was just about, we don't want male asylum seekers coming here yeah. from different parts of the world. We don't want people with ulterior motives, as somebody is quoted as saying, to declare echo about this. So... It's the language of unvetted fighting age, that kind of yeah, language. I mean, men stuff, yeah. Yeah. It, I don't think you can have all the consultation in the world about that. You're not changing people from those yeah. views. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there will always be some people whose minds you're not going to change and there'll be those who just don't want anyone else from another background in there at all. But definitely within Inch there was, and I think everyone recognises this, hindsight is obviously twenty twenty, but that there was a failure on the communications piece where um, I know, for example, some um, local TDs, when they knew that some, some preparatory work was being done at McGenna House, they had put in like written requests for information to Roderick O'Gorman's department saying, right, what's going on? Not because we've got any issue, but just because it will be easier for us to make sure that it's a welcoming setting if we know what's going on and we can communicate mm-hmm. to, the, to mm-hmm. what's going on to locals. But they ended up not getting a reply until literally as the buses were disembarking on the ground and people were being moved in. So there was no opportunity to try and smooth over any concerns. And that although you're never going to win over everyone, those in the middle ground who would be assuaged mm. where they just told what was going on, that opportunity was lost. I suppose the point is, are like if you aren't doing any of the prep, prep work, because some people ask, mm. well, why do you need to have any consultation whatsoever? But if you haven't given any sort of notice to people on the ground that this is happening, they're not getting anything from the government side or in terms of, well, why do we need to use this facility or whatever? All they're hearing potentially is anti-immigrant mm. things and people, and you have already seen, we've seen multiple times, sorry, uh, representative groups, whether it be the Irish National Party or the Irish Freedom Party, mm. other groups like that will move in and they will have, mm. they will they will provide Capitalize information. Of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so They'll what actually gains on it. Well, so if, they're, if, they're, if you're not hearing from anything alternative to that, well, that is a failure then. 
Yeah, it is. And I suppose as well, as you say then, what you're having is sort of a boycott of maybe local demonstrations that might have come from a place of perhaps some sort of genuine concern about suitability of the area. And then, you know, having those hijacked perhaps by people who have uh, ulterior motives. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, to kind of question as well the reasons for maybe not giving communities a heads up. Is there is there some sort of concern about the fact that if there's any advance notice that there will be a protest organised or that it will That's give the likes well, of yeah. far-right groups mm. um, an insight into where, where things are moving to next? But like in the grand scheme of things, whether you tell people on a Monday or you tell them on a Friday, if there's going to be a demonstration, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It still it would it would still seem like respect for both uh, the people who are going to be moving into the accommodation and the people in that community for everyone to be informed and be on at least some sort of a level of footing. Which is interesting because if you talk about the need to not let there be a void open up that can be manipulated Mm. by those with different motives it was interesting then to hear what Roderick O'Gorman said in the Dáil on Tuesday evening because he was addressing this idea of well particularly in Inch there were communications failures but he was saying this is an accommodation crisis and when we identify somewhere that people could potentially be housed we kind of have not only this moral obligation but also this humanitarian urgency that we need to take it up ASAP. So there isn't always going to be the chance to negotiate is the wrong word but even to um, involve local communities or even in some way to notify them what's going on so that you can deal with the misinformation before it arises. So he was kind of almost pointedly in in an unspoken way leaving the door open to this concession that we know that we're always going to be dealing with an information void. Like, that's kind because of a informa- cop-out though, a small well, bit. Like, it is a little bit of a cop-out, I, I think. Like, I mean, I, I understand, like, this is an emergency situation, yeah. so everything is moving really rapidly and really quickly. And of course, you know, you don't want to leave anyone sleeping on the street for one extra night when, of course, you could move them as soon as something becomes available. So I, I appreciate and I respect that. But I do think that, like, you know, like we talked about this last week, like there is a refugee camp in the middle of Dublin city centre at the moment and has been for quite some time. So yes, it's an emergency, but it's an emergency we've known about for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are vacant properties and, you know, every person listening to this podcast can identify a vacant property within five minute drive of their own home probably. And it would, you know, clearly there are vacant properties that are being identified as potentials. So, if in that instance, surely there should be some preliminary communication with communities to say, listen, we have a vacant property in our community. We're making a consideration on this. It's not a guarantee, but we'd like to get together a, com- a committee. Would there be a committee of people who might be involved in the integration team and like at least start a dialogue with people? This like this kind of idea of like, oh, you know, it's an emergency, so we're just moving really rapidly is, is kind yeah. of a cop It's been an ongoing emergency for a really long time now. The, the, there's a couple of reasons why I think you're, you're probably right in that, but the government is effectively losing, losing the battle on this one in a couple of different ways in that nobody seems to be happy with how these things are being policed. Um, the information going out to communities is not what it should mm-hmm. be. And in fact, the lack of information has led itself to very difficult situations for people on the ground, whether that be in Currafin and County Clare, which is about 20 kilometres up the road uh, from Inch, which is obviously taking a lot of the focus over the last week. But in Currafin, misinformation was put out there about an old big house, which was going to be used as according to people who were wrong mm. uh, for the accommodation of asylum seekers. Yeah. So groups who got themselves involved in the anti-immigration movement got out there and this included members of various uh, groupings and parties and alignments. They all got out there and did their own little blockade out there uh, and one man was walking past um, just on Sunday evening and uh, allegedly he was hit in the face with a torch as he walked, went back to his house. He lives nearby to that property. Again, no asylum seekers were actually meant to be going into that place 
But um, this there, is something... Was there any use for that facility then at all? Or was it just an entirely just misinformation. There was a video which went around which was purported to be from inside there which showed a load of bunk beds. But again, there is no contract which was signed around that house and this apparently was just pure misinformation. So like unverified footage that went viral basically created a huge... A, a, a very difficult situation. And again, like you had counter-protests there outside in Corofin as well by a load of groups who were sort of trying to say, well, Claire's reputation is taking a hit by this. We want to show that we're open to asylum seekers mm. coming here and being welcoming. But the problem is now... That as, like as you're sort of saying, Zara, mm. if you start to give people heads up or people get worried that places are actually being used, people are already organising to move blockades in front okay, of them, yeah. which is going to be a problem as we, as this goes on, because this is going to go through the, you know, it's going to go on through the summer. And it's interesting to see one thing actually which has jarred with me, I think, actually, in terms of the communication over this. Yesterday, Roderick O'Gorman was asked about a couple of media reports uh, around um, cruise ships and floatels, yeah. mm. which is the most spinny word of all time for a barge. Mm. Um, like, I don't know why we can't be straightforward and call them barges or why they haven't been referred to as that. I think that's probably going to be something which is going to change because when Suella Braverman does it in the UK... Mm. Um, but in that instance, they're actually talking about a barge. They're talking about something that looks like shipping containers on a flatbed. No, yeah, well, I mean, that's, they're literally, what? they've been... Like, that, that's effectively what the British one looks like. If you see the, the footage of it, like, there's there's photography of it and footage we might have even carried it in our bulletins before. And, it, like, it's very industrial what they're using. Like, it, it to all intents and purposes... Like, there's no uh, windows. It, it has, windows it has the, yeah. But it has the physical characteristics of almost like a shipping vehicle with like flatbed like so what I'm imagining sorry is it like do you know on a construction site the kind of the site office would be like a a container with windows basically whereas I I think from what I'd understood from the Irish perspective they weren't talking about something quite that industrial they were were talking about passenger vessels which looked more like ferries in the Irish instance not that it's a huge amount better And, and by the way um, I had like naval mechanics getting in touch in the radio program on Sunday when we were talking about this. They say you still need an awful lot of expertise for people who are involved in the maintenance of that. I was say, it's like not just like plumbing and electricity. Yeah, and all that it's kind not of just stuff. like putting it up in berth and sticking it up in John Rogerson's key and then leaving it alone and then hey presto, you've got a hotel. Mm. It's different. You know? I know we need to move on, but I just want to say just in relation to the point that you were making about the misinformation, right? We saw this similar type of misinformation at the beginning. Remember the very beginning of the pandemic, there was the whole... Well, lot, a lot of the, the, lot of the people were spreading it were the same that. people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I just feel like we have these whole sort of narratives around lessons will be learned. What lessons were learned from that? Nothing. To say that like we're still back here again with people being consumed and sort of wrapped up in misinformation. I just think that, that there's an, a broader issue here that needs to be addressed. And it's, it's a multiple of failings on the part of the government. Well, this week there is a new awareness campaign around the issue of intimate image abuse and particularly around the threatening uh, of sharing intimate images. Zara, you've been working on this this week. Mm. Why the renewed focus then on on, on raising awareness around this? Is it specifically around the threatening issue and whether or not people actually know that's an offence? Yeah, this is really important. And I think actually it's interesting because apparently 50% of people based on the research from the Department of Justice didn't actually know this. So if you're listening to this podcast, and someone has ever threatened to share an image of you, perhaps, um, let's be honest, nudes, naked, explicit photos, perhaps uh, you might have even sent them yourself. Maybe you consent to them being taken or perhaps they were taken without your knowledge, irrespective of the circumstances of the photo being generated. If somebody has threatened to share that, even forwarded on on WhatsApp, posted online, anything of that nature, the threat itself is actually a crime. Mm. And so many people don't realise that. Mm. They think, oh, but he didn't actually post it online or her. The fact that someone would threaten you is actually the criminal offence in itself. So the reason it's on the news agenda this week is because the Department of Justice has um, created a new ad campaign, television and radio campaign. We can take a quick look at the ad that's running on TV at the moment. It's ridiculous what's going on. 
I told her I was going to stick shots of her up online. Shots she sent me. So they're mine, really. I know she's upset, but I haven't done it. I only said I would. I was just messing with her head. I don't even know why you're asking me about it. It's not a crime. It is a crime. That's why we're here. So as you can see there, uh, the guard clearly stating at the end of that commercial that it is a criminal offence. So look, this is about, I suppose, letting people know all of this is part of uh, Coco's Law. People will be familiar with Jackie Fox, the mother of uh, Nicole Fox, who's been campaigning for this uh, for a really long time. Uh, during the week, we were speaking with Alexandra Ryan, who's one of the campaigners on this. Uh, people may have heard Ali Ryan's story. She is the co-founder, or she's the founder of Goss.ie and she spoke very publicly about two years ago about being in this situation where someone had threatened her to share um, explicit images online. And she was talking about the fact that, look, it's the threat that looms over you that Mm. is in Mm. so many ways even more difficult than, than the image itself. That it's that idea that somebody has that power over you, that they you know, can try and extract, you know, money from you and and make threats to you that now we're in a situation where if this is happening to you, you can actually, you can walk into your local guard station and report that and and know that it will be dealt with. Um, in relation to, I suppose, was one of the questions that came up from people was, you know, well, like how many people are charged or are there any prosecutions and is it even worth going to the guards? Mm. And that's a lot of... Because it's a fresh enough law, isn't it? It hasn't yeah. been on the books all that long. Yeah. So there might not be great stats about how many prosecutions there's Well, been. Ali gave out some stats and again, Ali's been campaigning on this. Um, she says over 100 charges have been um, there's been over 100 charges so far and nearly a thousand images have been taken down since the legislation came in so look it is slow progress but it is progress mm. um, and I think look when we when we talk about these sorts of threats and this looming sort of um, concern for people it's about your reputation it's about you know people being uh, their reputation being damaged threats for images to be sent to people's employers and, and, and whatnot. so look it's good for people to know as they listen to the podcast today that if you've been in this situation you know that you can uh, get in touch with there's also a website um, hotline.ie if you want to check that out as well it's actually just it's a really good one just in terms of information I did get an email in from a couple of people on the DMs but this email that came into my inbox uh, from one person who was saying look my friends and I have all had this threatened and it happened in a more limited manner over the years when social media wasn't so prevalent uh, it would be amazing law but I'm reluctant to be excited until I see some successful prosecutions Um and again, just this person going on to talk a bit about the, the blackmail and extortion and demanding money and how menacing it has been and the stress that it can cause people. So that, I, that first line, all all of my friends. Yeah, like it's really commonplace. It's not it's not something that, you know, maybe people don't really talk about it because I suppose the nature of it is that you're not going to have a full blown discussion about it if you're worried about yeah. something like this coming yeah. out. Like that's understandable. But actually, if you're listening to this, you should you should take comfort in the knowledge that you're not alone certainly when it comes to to dealing with these types of situations. Yeah, and the judgment of any law is whether or not it actually works. So it's going to be one yeah. to monitor in, in terms of whether or not things are prosecuted. Um, Gav, during the week, one of the stories which put Ireland into international headlines was mm. alcohol warning mm. labels. So now it's not coming into force until 2026. People might have missed that bit. So yeah. it is a few years down the line. But what's the purpose of these and why have they why have they gone, gone so gung-ho on something which is actually quite controversial? Uh, but, well, it, well maybe, actually, maybe it might be easier to talk about why it's controversial first, which is that they, it will now mean that every... Uh, item of alcohol, every unit, every bottle, every can that's going to be sold in Ireland is going to have to carry mandatory health warnings. Something akin to uh, what we used to see on tobacco, not quite as far as the plain packaging, but that they will have to carry um, certain guidelines as to the alcohol content and some of the health impacts of that. Um, And the idea is that people in Ireland often find themselves not realising how much their alcohol intake 
influences their overall diet or their overall, for example, calorie intake or how many uh, calories they might consume on a weekly or daily basis. And part of the thinking is that it will at least give people a slightly more rounded view of things. So, for example, people may not realise that every time that they open a can of lager, that it's they might think about the alcohol content, but they may not think about the calorie content. So the idea is that people will have a slightly more rounded view when you're taking in that it's not just about the calories, but actually that there is a a dietific, if you like, Mm. impact to all of that as well and to make people aware of that. Now, it's been controversial because, for example, the Italian wine lobby thinks that this yes, is a... Yes, we have a wine war. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't think Ireland was going to be involved in wine wars, but but here we are. Um, the Italians are particularly incensed about this because they see this as, by and large, an attack on them because this will now mean that an Italian exporter who wants to sell stuff mm-hmm. in Ireland will have to produce an Ireland-specific label that conforms with mm. the, the requirements of the Irish law. Well, I, for law. one, hope the Italians will be put off by this. It would be dramatic for our... No, yeah, Prosecco labelling is, yeah. yeah. Say, imagine if the Italian wines are, and the Proseccos are off the shelves, it would be devastating. But when we were talking so, about this a bit before we went live today, Rich, you pointed out that actually that there's an impact on this or it's, it's somewhat implicated in discussions about um, body image. Yeah. And actually there was a clip that went semi-viral over the weekend, which was quite interesting. Yeah, people who, people who follow sport, it might have just been across Twitter or Instagram because I know it went viral on both. There was a clip of Jeff Selling who does Soccer Saturday in the UK and he was talking about it's... Um, I think it's Mental Health Awareness Week or something in the UK, and he was talking about uh, eating disorders and how it is basically the mental uh, illness with the highest death toll anywhere in the Western world in terms of actual, you know, people who lose their lives through it. Uh, And basically, specifically, he mentioned one thing around calorie counts, particularly on restaurant menus. Now, there has been studies done on this. And obviously, calorie counts, which are going to be part of the labels for alcohol in this country alongside grams of alcohol, risks of cancer, liver disease, and, you know, dangers of drinking while pregnant. It's a different thing to having that in an alcoholic drink yeah. as opposed to on a menu for a restaurant. But, uh, but studies it kind of feeds have... into a broader culture, though, of people ca- counting calories and whether that can always be a sometimes a destructive thing. Yeah, no, so people with eating disorders, there was a big survey done actually only last month in the UK, uh, and they found that 84% of people with... Um, Eating disorders, people with the likes of anorexia or bulimia actually had their recovery badly hampered as a result of calorie counts uh, on menus, that it will feed into disordered eating Mm. and that effectively, it can kill people. Mm. This can kill people. This is a health warning, but in many ways, in in, in one of the biggest growing areas of mental illness in eating disorders, this can be a very, very damaging and and harmful thing. So it's something to bear in mind on this. It's probably, it is a different situation in terms of overall menus for a restaurant versus on specific individual products. Mm. But as you say, also, there's a lot of international pressure on Ireland. As you mentioned, the Italians, the Spaniards were against this as well, the UK, the EU, the US. Everyone's not entirely happy, even the the lobby for the vintners and all that sort of stuff. They're also kind of against this as well. And we've seen the power that lobbies have in this country as well, Zara. Well, yeah, I mean, they've been successful in the past, I suppose, yeah. It's it's just a really worthwhile reminder, though, that stuff that is intended to be as a positive, like calorie counting on on restaurant menus, for example, was intended to be so that people casually knew how much they were taking in, that they could moderate their intake. It's the casually knew that you're referring to there. Nothing is casual when you're dealing with an eating disorder. It's not casual. It's not casual. It's 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 so focused yeah. isn't it yeah because yeah. and that's a very specific um sort of thing that people in that situation will hone in on and it's, mm. it's actually something that's worth raising in a sense that i suppose it it's not something you would consider when you say it it makes a lot of sense no and it is it's like i mean people who are behind this campaign and about the initiative they're doing it with health reasons in 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 mind i mean mm. you know the links in terms of alcohol related deaths in this country alcohol related cancers all of those sort of things are huge impacts on people's lives and well-being but this is just something which is probably worth considering in the round mm-hmm. on this as well mm. now 
this has actually been a busy week for Ireland in terms of international headlines because fines for the fines to be collected or to be given to oh, Ireland yeah. mm. um, racking them up we are turning our nose up at, at some of them obviously there's the long going Apple case which has been heard in Europe at the moment 13 mm. billion euros uh, which Ireland is like yeah. no we don't want that for whatever reason that's the appeal to the original ruling so Ireland w- won its original case at the EU yeah. courts but now it's appealed to the higher EU court and the hearing was this week so we're probably not getting a ruling for months long maybe time. not even years But why don't we want the 13 billion euro because the government doesn't want Apple, Facebook or any of these big companies to go, oh crap, we can't do business in Ireland, let's right. get out of here. The Irish government's contention, <laughs> this, this, this will sound like spin, but the Irish government's contention is that the European Commission has misunderstood the way Irish law works. So they think that we've done a sweetheart deal with Apple. We are actually saying, no, this is just the way our law works, that any big company that was intelligent of the planet's affairs uh, could reduce its tax liabilities in this way. And actually they would see mm. then this as something of a power grab by Brussels that Brussels is trying to rewrite how our tax law works. And they're like, no, we're not having that. Even though, ironically, rolling over and taking it would leave us 13 billion better off. But they reckon it's a point of principle. Meta as well, which, you know, is the big parent company for Facebook, that's Mm -hmm. been ordered to pay 1.2 billion. Um, And actually, an argument has been raised about this. Whether or not these sort of fines and the amount of money that's actually there will have any impact if these companies already have billions and billions and billions. This is no, this is a drop in the water for them. Mm. And yes, it just encourages them to go, well, we can just actually skirt around the regulations and pay a little fine and we're all right. Mm-hmm. You could well argue that the commercial benefit, so in Meta's instance, they were fined because of the unlawful transfer of users' data outside of the EU. Mm. And on broadly speaking, that's, of course, not okay. But what's you could certainly argue that the commercial gain by doing that, in the terms of like how easy it made for Facebook to sell ads and whatnot, they probably could arguably have made quite a bit more than 1.2 billion. That actually, the amount of money they've racked up by just skirting some of the data control laws could argue actually that 1.2 billion isn't nearly enough, mm. arguably speaking. And as we're coming to air, there are obviously is concerns over the future of Meta in terms of jobs in Dublin. The Taoiseach mm. saying earlier 490 today, jobs gone. Is yeah, it 490? Yeah, to go at, um, yeah. at its Irish operation. Obviously, one of its European headquarters there in... That's a huge blow for Dublin. Let's be honest, that's a huge blow for Dublin. Because there's a bigger impact on the the tech ecosystem as well, that some Mm -hmm. of the jobs that will be supported by Meta are third-party resellers or software auditors or anything like that I mean, it is a backbone sector in terms of the economy in Dublin. Mm. Yeah, I suppose there's a question to be asked there as well. If you're talking about what Gav's saying there about the, the strategy is to try and, you know, protect the tech sector, you can do all you like to try and protect the tech sector, but it is very up and down as, as, as recent years have shown us and recent layoffs at all of the big players um, in Dublin have actually shown. So with all the best will in the world, you can try all you, all you like to try and protect jobs mm-hmm. in here in Ireland, but they could still go anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zara, before we uh, finish up in this segment, you've been mm-hmm. looking again at the cost of living situation with yeah. regards to families in particular. Bernardos, yes. uh, which has done really good studies on this over the years, they've, they've yeah. released another one, haven't they? Yeah, there's another report out from Bernardos today just talking about the impact the cost of living is having on individuals. And uh, I was speaking with one family who, the piece will be on the news at 5.30 this evening, so you'll have probably seen it by the time we hear the podcast. Look, the reality is families are really struggling and it's being borne out in this report. And um, we're hearing anecdotes from people about the fact that their children will have three outfits and that's the as much as they can afford to dress them in and those three outfits will be on rotation and the shoes will will be worn till they're worn out and like you know you have two small kids Gavin yeah. children grow mm. I mean they're growing out of clothes at an enormous they grow rate. and they're messy so yeah. often you might need more than one outfit per day anyway because yeah. of the, the, the breakfast that they'll spill down themselves so mm. the idea yeah. that you are cutting corners so much that they've only got three outfits in rotation yeah. or like you said if they're wearing shoes out I mean there was one anecdote that I've already heard today as well of people who have beyond worn the shoes out that mm-hmm. there's holes in the kids runners and yeah. they get soaked when they're wet but they can't afford replacements 
That's the reality of where we are. It is the reality of where we are. And I think sometimes we just need to kind of like, sometimes we talk about cost of living and it's this buzzword, but we just need to get back to kind of basics here. This is really what people are going through um, and was really, you know, privileged to be able to sit down with a family today um, in Dublin and have a conversation with a mum, with Elizabeth, who has six kids and she's just trying to keep the groceries on the table. Confirmation here in the house. Her daughter's making the confirmation. Great excitement, obviously, about that. But, you know, trying to pay off for the confirmation outfit. And then her daughter was asking for new runners. And, you know, of course, Elizabeth loves her kids. She wants to give them everything she can, but is really sort of finding herself. Now, she's good at shopping around. She would tell you that she'll go from different supermarkets to get different things. Um, and, you know, she wants to be able to try and, and give the kids the best she can. But look, she's just saying it's getting tighter and tighter. Uh, she had an, a thousand euro electricity bill in the door there in the last couple of months. And she's going to pay it off in installments. But she, she was sort of saying, you know, new bills come in every month. So it just keeps racking up and up and up. So um, Bernardo's highlighting that again today. Um, I would say the call from Elizabeth and Bernardo themselves is for the government. We had that cost of living budget, Gavin, uh, last year. Mm. I suppose this idea of one-off help is really not enough for these families. No. There needs to be something a bit more consistent that will provide a kind of an ongoing support over the 12 months of the year. And it's 19 weeks until the budget. And if they're ruling out any other cost of living interventions until then then what is the relief for people like her who are facing €1,000 per month energy bills and the confirmations that come around and the washing machine breaks down or something else? Like There's very little respite for those people and those, those calls are only going to get louder between now and budget day. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Holly and Phil, Zara, what's the story? I'm so obsessed with this story. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the Holly and Phil thing. Do you know what? I wasn't that obsessed with it last week. And then when he was axed at the weekend, I was like, hook it to my veins. I've just I like how you've gone myself. full tabloid language there. I have. Axed. 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 I, TV so, man axed. And the thing is, like, it's not that I'm like a This Morning viewer because I'm always at work with <laughs> on. But like, I do. I, do, I will admit, actually, and this is my kind of guilty pleasure. Sometimes on the weekends, the other way I was saying I catch up on my podcast on the weekends and I do the housework or whatever and I'd be going around with the earpods in and sometimes I do like to watch back segments from this morning on YouTube and Loose Women. I'm sorry, I do. Well, firstly, you should be watching it on the Virgin Media oh, player. I mean, but, but, yeah. no, but you get the clips of the items on, um, I know you're going, I know you hate this. You're like, don't don't be this person. But what I would say about the Holly and Phil thing, to stay on focus. Sorry, no, I just need to explain to people who don't know who Holly and Phil are. We just use two first names are there. there. Just in case. Who don't know just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Because we are an explaining thing. Holly and Phil, Holly Willoughby, Philip Schofield. Philip Schofield, yeah. This morning. Yeah. Philip Schofield quit over the weekend. He quit over the weekend. Yeah. But they've kind of, so I'm, I, no one really knows what the fallout is over. I mean, there's, look, there's rumors online, let's be blunt about it, but there's no real clarity as to what the fallout was over. I suppose, mm. look, we talked about it at the time when the Queen died 
died and the whole queue skipping saga you know they never seem to really recover from that in terms of their relationship I think there was a bit of a split in the camp over that um, they've been sort of I suppose growing apart for a while there was talk that she had been under his management company and I think left that a couple of years ago sure. and that there had been kind of a split around all of that now people will say when I say people I mean Eamon Holmes Eamon Holmes <laughs> <laughs> Eamon Holmes so I, I actually recommend also, looking up Eamon until Holmes. he moved to GB News an occasional co-host of this the Friday he's yeah. to Fridays yes. so yeah. Eamon Holmes and his wife Ruth Langsford used to do Fridays on this morning so Holly and Phil would do Monday to Thursday they would do the Friday show and then they were axed as well and Eamon Holmes would have said at the time that he never got any clarity or insight from ITV Daytime as to why they were left go um, but Eamon Holmes has been really straight in saying that uh, Philip Schofield was, was difficult to work with and that he had been very um, I suppose what's the word influential maybe within ITV daytime okay. and that you know a lot of people would were make or break on his say so kind of that he was quite a powerful He's individual power in broker. the organisation okay. yeah now listen he was there for 20 years and you know had a very successful career for the most part in those 20 years Um but Eamon Holmes would cite examples, including a time where um, Philip Schofield interrupted Ruth Langsford. They were doing a crossover to Loose Women, you know, what's coming up on the show kind of thing. Now, I think if you watched it and you worked in TV, you might kind of think they were probably out of time and they were probably going overtime and maybe he caught a crosser for that reason. But if you're a viewer at home, it did come across a little bit rude. He was okay. sort of like, OK, OK, Ruth, we have to go now. We're kind of busy. And anyway, Eamon Holmes cites that as one example. Uh, I see you've got an Eamon Holmes few quotes there. some of the quotes there. Yeah. So... <laughs> Eamon Holmes criticised Holly Willoughby over her claim. She put out an Instagram story statement saying she was sad about mm. Philip Schofield finishing off. And she said the sofa won't be the same, you. but I mean, you could take that as being it won't be the same. Like, could be best could be luck better. Eamon exactly, Holmes yeah. said, well, she wanted him not there, so what is she moaning about? Holly is being as false as he is and nobody is talking about the elephant in the room. Mimicking the TV star, he said, oh, the couch will not be the same without him being there. Holmes then said, they deserve each other. You know, Oof. I watched that clip. Watched Me, yeah. Sorcerer of Milk for GB News Towers. Do you know what, though? I'm kind of loving sassy Eamon Holmes. I'm into it. The one thing that I it's kind of find I've straight... I've never that, seen him that, be sassy about anything, like, have you? No, I've, I don't actually... I have actually. Oh, have you? For another day. For another okay, day. Okay, okay. <laughs> His previous guys as a, as a news presenter, yeah. Okay, okay, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, all okay. right. Excuse me. Um, one thing which I find interesting is the all oh, the, the TV industry chat about, like, how, oh, this morning we'll never come back from this. Or it's almost like... the lady oh, will This morning will always be This is it. People thought that it couldn't survive Richard and Judy. Do you remember the, the Richard and Judy days? Listen, do and, I remember the Richard thought, and Judy days? Don't insult me. I adored but, the Richard but pe- and Judy people days. People thought when they're gone, that's it now. It's never going to be the same. Like the never only good it. thing about being off school sick when you were a kid was like Richard and Judy in the morning and like your mom bringing you tea and toast on the couch. It was fabulous. Like, I mean, they were, this morning is an institution. I would say that's now a standard uh, off school thing for Irish kids now, <laughs> okay, to be honest. But, no, Richard but back Judy. in the 90s, like it was, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, Richard well, and Judy was on our house Kids TV channels to put anything else on. It was pretty much the only thing on. But this morning is an institution. I mean, look, it absolutely is. There's mm. no point in saying otherwise. It absolutely is. And, you know, look, Alison Hammond and is it Dermot O'Leary? Yeah, are doing the next two At the moment, weeks, they're yeah. doing the two weeks. They're very good. Yeah. I mean, there's Somebody absolutely no... They do Fridays. Uh, Craig Doyle. Craig Doyle, I remember I saw mm. recognised former Hughes face of and Marvin. UBC Broadband. Yep. Yeah. Rochelle and Marvin Humes have done it a few times. Like, I mean, look, it's the kind of show, like, it's, I think you could you could slap people into it. I think mm. it will survive. I think it will. I do, do think it will mm. survive. One other show that is going to survive and has a new face behind the desk is the Late Late Show. Uh, Patrick Keelty uh, confirmed as the new host. It has basically been a, a poorly kept secret now for the last number of weeks at this yes. point in time. Um, some, I think it was interesting to see some of the media scrutiny from some papers in particular about the fact that he's 
living in London mm-hmm. and whether or not he'll be disconnected from Irish people around that. I find as, that a little if, bit... As if internet communications technology doesn't exist. Well, like, without putting too fine a point on it, Patrick Keelty is as Irish as you'll get anybody. Mm. He's a big mm-hmm. GA man. He has a very fresh perspective on Irishness, which we haven't heard from anybody who's presented the Late Late Show before with all the greatest respect of the world for three of the best broadcasters Ireland have ever had in terms mm-hmm. of Ryan Tuberty, Pat Kenny and Gay Byrne. Mm-hmm. All of them have lived in very particular socio-economic backgrounds, all of them living in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Keelty will be coming from outside of the RTE bubble, which is an, also a big thing. Mm-hmm. Also yeah, a northern time. perspective on things, which is often overlooked for a show which is broadcast in the north as well. Mm-hmm. Family backstory is very interesting as well. Of course, he's spoken openly and very effectively over the years with documentaries as well about the murder of his uh, father when he was just 16 by members of the UFF. But there is other criticisms which have been now been levelled at him about in terms of like, commuting back and forth from London in terms of emissions, which is probably... Yeah. Like, I get it. Yeah. I get it. There's probably... I think I think overall, in fairness, this is actually probably going to start a conversation broader than RT in terms mm. of how many people need to fly back and forth from Dublin to London for business multiple times every week that happens yeah. all the time Well, the, which I think is possibly the more important bit because people will think that Patrick Keelty is some kind of sole offender that he's one of the only people that's going to be like hopping across the sea every week when in fact it's it's much more commonly done than a lot of people might think yeah. particularly yeah. At, at higher ends of business where people are juggling business interests on both sides of the sea mm-hmm. and do it quite regularly well, it's, so it's, it's not it's, all that remarkable It's the really. busiest I think it's somebody subscribed to it today as the busiest um between two capitals of different countries, yeah. Air Rouge and the world. Or, or one, one oh, of the yeah. busiest. One of them anyway, I think definitely. like Beijing and Hong Kong, I think possibly overtook it at some point. But that, yeah, like Dublin to London, when yeah. you just think of the, the volume of flights that there are every day. Actually, there's like, nearly one every hour in the evening time. But there you go. Like the Heathrow yeah. flight back to Dublin, I think there's one at like seven, eight and nine or something. Mm-hmm. There is like, there's nearly an hourly one in the evening. One thing I, I think will be interesting about um, Patrick Keelty, and by the way, I agree with with um, all of your, your aforementioned assessments. And I actually think he's been slightly unlucky in that he has been announced as getting the job after... Claire Byrne and Mary McCallaghan and Sarah can I, can I actually just no. say I'm sorry can I just say I actually really wanted a woman to get the job yeah. I have to be totally honest we all, with you yeah. I really we all, did we, when we were talking about it before that it wasn't a female presenter yeah we all yeah. talked about we all really wanted Claire Byrne to get I it I really fully expected Claire I, Byrne and yeah. I don't yeah. mind telling you I messaged Claire Byrne to say that I really wanted yeah. her to get it so. uh, but I, I think that Patrick Keelty is somewhat unlucky in that he may now come across as being like well he was the next available person rather than but being a very good appointee I don't think it's that I think Claire didn't want it in the end and she was very clear about not wanting it but I do think that Patrick Kilty is absolutely going to be great at this. I just really would have liked to have seen a woman get a chance at yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not sure how long he wants to stick around at it as well. Mm. But I think it's... It may not be as long term as it's been in before. Oh, probably yeah. not. You know I mean? like, and even the fact like, that Ryan Tuberty set a precedent that you do it for a period of time mm. and but you Pat move did it for shorter. Pat did it for 10 years yeah. and him said, that's enough. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. I think there's a potential bonus to it. And I think I think it, it almost has fallen into RT's lap, the Patrick Kilty situation, mm. in that they probably didn't think at the start of the process. Mm. But obviously there was a lot of reporting around this. And from what I know from inside RT, it was expected that Claire Byrne would be the person who would take the helm mm-hmm. of the Late Late Show. But they have now a person who's going to be based in London for a lot of the time who has big connections over there. There is often criticism at the Late Late Show in terms of the quality of the guests they get from overseas. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're not having somebody who's from the RTE bubble, the dependence on RTE guests from various shows throughout the week might be lessened yeah. as a result of this. Also, the accusation of like putting the canteen on the couch on a Friday night. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that, I think it addresses some of that. And mm-hmm. obviously, it's a good opportunity to have if you have an outsider to shake up the format. Yeah, fair. which is something that which is, is long overdue. On, on the flip side, very brave, very briefly though, um, on a Friday night, um, Tuberty had made something of a fine art post-COVID of pre-recording items during the week and have yeah. done in the same set, so that if a good guest was available, but they were only around on a Tuesday afternoon, okay, Tuberty yeah. was fine sitting into the studio and putting on the same. He was going to wear on Friday and getting it done and dusted. Mm. That's not going to be an option available to Patrick Keelty if he's only going to come over on a 
Thursday morning or, or whenever it is. So it'll be interesting to see whether they're they're able to compensate for that. Yeah, secure the guests. But I think that's a good point you make about the connections and being in London and actually being based around, you know, maybe having that access mm. to mm. sort of more yeah. high profile guests. Yeah, I just think it's, it's interesting before we wrap up, like the idea as well that because you're A from the North and you're living abroad makes you somehow less connected to Ireland. I just think it's just slightly askew. So many people in our country have had to leave mm. for a time and to live abroad. And connected to what's going on at home. It'd be like saying people who listen to the group chat abroad aren't connected to Ireland and we'd hate for people to feel <laughs> that. But anyway, best wishes to Ryan as he finishes up late last show is oh, this week. last show this is week. This, this Friday, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, parting thoughts on Ryan's legacy, I suppose, at the Late Late Toy Show. Toy Show definitely is biggest Toy legacy. Show, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good luck trying to follow that. Now, we have a couple of sports stories um, to finish the podcast this week. I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't mention what has been happening in Spain. Mm. Uh, to Vinicius Jr., one of the brightest stars in world football, plays for Real Madrid. But it's an ongoing situation, Gavin, which has really come to the boil, I think, over the last weekend. Perhaps the only remaining superstar left in La Liga, really, uh, in some terms, yeah, after the departure of, of Lionel Messi. Certainly the star of the Real Madrid team. And some of the abuse that he's just been getting from the terraces, and this really culminated last weekend against Valencia, um, has been shocking. Like, genuinely shocking. And uh, I think it's a real reckoning for La Liga because this has been bubbling on for a while and, he, and he's been the victim of racist abuse and racist chance uh, on the stands for a long time. But with this very laissez-faire, hands-off approach to ever penalising anyone who's been responsible for it. Um, but it seems to have just reached this tipping point now where he himself has spoken out about it and he effectively seems to have thrown in the towel on playing in Spain now forevermore. But, or it almost seems that way that it's very difficult for him to reconcile himself to Spanish society mm-hmm. because of the generally standoff approach. And it's almost in a way, it's not a sports story, it's a societal story because he just has been the victim of such horrendous treatment. And like, rather than uh, coming to his uh, side or trying to rallying behind him, there almost seems to be this idea of no, with further pulling down the, the shutters and marginalising him even more. Yeah, four people were arrested over the hanging of an effigy, which effectively was of him um, in Madrid. Um, he has documented online basically all of the instances of racist chanting, racist abuse uh, mm. that has been targeted at him over um, the course of this season even um, and he just is relentlessly getting it and La Liga which is the Spanish league doesn't seem to want to take any firm action on it I think the most damning thing about it was Valencia's sporting newspaper uh, put up a no more a big sort of this is the end of this sort of mm. situation but it wasn't about racism it was about complaints about racism from Real Madrid and from Vinicius which just shows Less there is a problem whimpering. there stop complaining about this this is all a conspiracy led by Real Madrid which is effectively Dreadful. very disgusting and it's yeah. just something to keep an eye on but uh, domestically um, Katie Taylor had her homecoming fight mm. uh, against Chantal Cameron mm. who won very handily in the end. I was really heartbroken for Katie Taylor. That's tough. Yeah. So tough. At home, it's so tough. Well, this was the thing that I think a lot of people overlooked how much of a sporting challenge it was going to be because we had just turned it into this national festival. They're like, oh, Katie finally has a pro fight in Dublin. Let's have a big hoolie. Isn't she great? Not realising that she was fighting the undisputed champion in the weight above her, moving beyond her natural weight to fight an undisputed S- champion. So somebody taller. Who, who has longer reach and is four yeah. years younger than her. Like that was always going to and be a big battle. Is bigger the age fighter. a factor? Do you think when it you get to that stage in your career? Be, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it would be. Yeah, if you're 36 fighting against a 32 year old okay. uh, who is slightly more explosive, who has won a larger percentage of her fights through knockout, it was always going to be an uphill battle. Mm. Interestingly, now they're talking about if she does go through with a, a rematch, they might rematch um, at Katie's weight. So Cameron would come down and fight her 
on her own terms. So the problem. That's a tough. That is a so, tough. So Katie went up weight category for yes. this. So she tried mm-hmm. to fight again. I don't think that makes sense. If she's meant to be, is this meant to be a homecoming for Katie Taylor? Yeah. They, Why they immediately Katie... brought her out of her natural weight category? Yeah. To take mm-hmm. on a, a glamour fight. And now yeah. if there's a rematch, Chantal Cameron, who's a naturally bigger athlete mm-hmm. and has already shown herself to have outboxed Katie Taylor in that fight, is going to be in a lower weight category. I just think it's an it's an mm-hmm. outmatch thing again. I think mm-hmm. this is a this is almost a situation where I can sort of feel, I can see the arguments that have been over the last number of days that Katie should call it a day mm. and go out with her head held high as opposed to taking, you know, potentially more difficult and more upsetting sort of, yeah. you know, outcomes out you of this. You never wanted to go, go off the back of two defeats, prospectively. So, and, and that, that's nothing a material left to prove. risk. She's nothing yeah. left to prove. But do you think that is that she wants one more win before she decides Not, to... Naturally enough, I think yeah, people yeah, in those sort of positions, boxers never call it a day um, themselves. You know, yeah. there's all sporting stories, like all political careers, end in disappointment. Uh, yeah. It's very, very rare that you'll get somebody who'll go out undefeated at the very, very top. Um, but that shouldn't take anything away from but the record she's, that she has she's had. such an icon. I mean, like, if she if she walked out the door tomorrow, she would forever be that icon. And yeah. I think the things that she would be remembered for won't be really what happened last weekend. She'll be remembered for 100%. success. She'll be remembered for how much she inspired young people to be involved in boxing, particularly young girls. Mm. So I just think, you know, like last weekend is disappointing for her, but it won't be the thing she's most remembered I, for. I hope there's somebody in her ear reminding her of that because it's yeah. very easy to go out thinking that your last fight is the thing you'll be remembered for. Absolutely not. I homecoming, just won't yeah. be, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, speaking of homecomings. Oh, yeah. Homecomings. <laughs> yeah. Lens Rugby were beaten by La Rochelle. I'm not disguising any glee in my voice about that. That's not what I'm doing at all. No. Um, but there was a big there was a big fight on, on Liveline and on the streets, as, as our king is telling us. But it's all spilled over yeah. in the gentleman's game. So I went to the Heineken Cup final, the most undeserving person in the crowd <laughs> for a ticket to the Heineken Cup final. Uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, it was a very last minute thing. I mean, absolutely wouldn't be deserving to be there as a Munster person as well. But anyway. Um, well, as a Munster person. Where were your loyalties? Mm. I, I'll be honest, I did cheer for Leinster. I did okay. cheer for Leinster. And I'll tell you why, because I suppose I support Ireland on the whole. And I felt that there are players on the Leinster team who play on the Ireland team. So that was my kind of... Now, okay. in saying that, I would say as a Cork-born woman whose uh, grandfather worships at the altar of Ronan O'Gara, I would say I was delighted for Ronan O'Gara. Um, in the uh, end. No, no, stop, stop hedging your bets No, now. no, I That's, think I was pretty yeah. new. I was a neutral observer, but I did cheer. Neutral. I did cheer on Leinster. I will say I did cheer on Leinster. I don't mm. mind telling you that. I think it was, you know, okay. obviously very disappointing You're for very them. very much in the minority I would say I did hear people bickering though when I told you that there was a lady started having a go at a bunch of young lads who had La Rochelle they were from Cork and they had La Rochelle jerseys and things and she was like you're a disgrace this is your own country there was a bit of a row like there was a bit of a barn and we were walking out of the stadium this is mental that this happens that you have to obviously Munster and Leinster is a rivalry right Yeah. this is like saying if Man United if Liverpool got into the European Cup final that United fans would go like Gavin Riley and the Manchester United fans would be like come on Liverpool do it for our league and our country no absolutely not but the people who rang in live line I also also think though that if Liverpool were in a Champions League final it would also be like phenomenally petty to start actively cheering but do you not think no it's it's not sorry to to show up in the stadium wearing their colours to be like yeah they probably have the tickets anyway as you do for a European final that's what happened with the tickets that I ended up going those tickets were bought a year ago people didn't know who was going to end up where you buy them in the hope that your own team gets there but you can offload them people beside us who were like I think their team was Saracens or something like that like there were people in the audience that weren't like Leinster or whatever you know 
this expectation that Munster fans wouldn't cheer on one of the greatest legends that has ever pulled on their jersey against their heated rivals is absolutely bedlam. It just shows that people do not know that sporting fandom, at least half of it, isn't just the support of your own team. It's the schadenfreude of your biggest rivals getting handed an embarrassing loss. But do you not subscribe to the logic that like there are players on the Leinster team who play for Ireland and and we're all Ireland? Couldn't care less. There's a lot of cheering on those individuals. In a World Cup year, Richard, would you not want to go in And again, not that I know a lot about sport, but in a World Cup year, I would have thought, cheer on those who will be playing for Ireland in the World Cup, surely. That's good logic. Best of luck to them, but there's a couple of Irish people who are involved in that La Rochelle as well. Congratulations to them. I hope they have the best of times. Uh, We are all rooting for them here on the group chat. We're having post-mortem for Ireland not winning the World Cup because of the fragility that crept in last weekend of the Aviva. I'll take the blame. I'll take the heat on that one. But that's uh, a bombshell to land it on for the end of this week's group chat. (laughs) Zara, Gavin, thank you very much for all of your thoughts, all of your views. Uh, We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for joining us here on the group chat. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.